0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure gamebooks out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're looking at Armies of Death, the 1988 fighting fantasy gamebook by Ian Livingstone, with internal art by Nick Williams and cover art by Christos Achilleos. No notices this episode, I'm just too excited to get into this book because it was one that had a big influence on me as a child and really set me on a path towards being the specific brand of nerd I am today. Don't get me wrong, I was always going to be a nerd. But the exact specific makeup of that nerdery was, in 1988, very much up for debate. This book was fundamentally my introduction to the idea of fantasy wargaming, which I've done in some way on and off ever since. It's possible, likely even, that I still would have ended up doing some wargaming through other means. but this book sparked the idea that there was something alluring about being the commander of troops in battle. Nowadays, I'm a hardcore pacifist with a love of history, and I have complicated thoughts about my relationship with simulated violence, especially on a mass scale. But as a child, I responded on a primal level to the idea of being able to command troops in battle. It's something that noted pacifist writer, war game enthusiast, and serial philanderer h. G. Wells also struggled with, so at least I'm in good company. It's going to be very interesting examining how armies of death actually functions and attempts to deliver on its core fantasy of commanding armies in the field. It's not something that game books are necessarily set up to model well. There's just so many moving parts in the average battle, and the multiplication of moving parts in a game book increases the complexity of the design to almost breaking point. The core rules of fighting fantasy are all present and correct here, with the note that you don't start off with any provisions or magic potions on this adventure. In all honesty, I think that's probably a good thing. The rules for fighting skirmish battles are presented, and they are incredibly simple. You compare the total number of troops on each side... And then roll repeatedly on a d6 table, which indicates how many troops are lost for each side as the battle progresses. The table changes depending on whether one side or the other has a numerical advantage. Fighting continues until one side has been eliminated. It's incredibly simple, but it gets the job done, and I like that numerical advantage is the key thing influencing the outcome of the battles. Obviously, in the real world, there are many factors that go into determining the outcome of a battle. And real troops rarely fight to the last soldier, but having something simple and graspable like numbers influence the likelihood of victory gives the mechanics a link to the real world, and I like that very much. I also like that the dice are very slightly weighted in the player's favour. If you have fewer troops you have only a 1 in 3 chance of killing the enemy, it's 50-50 if the sides are even, but if you have a numerical advantage then it's a 5 in 6 chance to kill some enemy troops. In a subtle and unobtrusive way, this models the idea that your troops are perhaps better trained and motivated than the forces of evil opposing you. It's a simple system. It does exactly what's required of it and no more. And I'll take a very simple system that works over a complicated system that doesn't every single time. I also like there's no null results. Every single roll you make will influence the outcome of the battle. There's no nothing happens, which is a thing I find very aggravating in-game books. It's also really nice to see Ian Livingstone back writing a fighting fantasy book. We last saw him in episode 26, Crypt of the Sorcerer, and it's always a special treat to be covering a book written by one of the original creators of the series. The cover art is also great. It depicts a monstrous soldier bedecked in armour and weapons and wearing a very elaborate headdress, holding a banner aloft amid the carnage of a mass battle Something's on fire in the background as well. It's full of energy and really sells the idea that this book will be about war on a grand scale. This book also forms a continuation of the story begun in Trial of the Champions, so I'll be playing my hero from that book, Soda Bickeringly. Using previous heroes to generate a backstory for the current book is something we don't see enough in fighting fantasy. Ian Livingstone had a good line in making his protagonists fundamentally good people, who are also very motivated by Golden Glory, the archetypical role-playing protagonist in other words. So the hero of Trial of the Champions makes a great choice for this book, not least because they already have the money necessary to embark on a career as a mercenary general. I've rolled fresh stats for Soda Bickeringly, who has a skill of 10, a stamina of 21, and a luck of 10. With all the preparation out of the way, let's dive straight into Armies of Death. (laughs) Background. Fame and fortune are two things which most adventurers crave, and having survived Baron Circumvit's infamous death trap dungeon, you now have both. It was thought impossible for anyone to battle their way successfully through the deadly dungeon in Fang, which was protected by the Baron's cunning trial masters, yet somehow you survived and claimed the purse of twenty thousand gold pieces in the trial of the champions. Now, Wherever you walk in fang, you are cheered, and in the taverns where you drink, people ask you about your perilous journey through the dungeon. Was there a bone devil in the dungeon? Did you see the beautiful siren? How did you overcome the lich queen? What does a cold claw look like? What is the colour of mutant orc's blood? All valid questions, and I think the biggest weakness of Trial of the Champions is the absence of spectators. It's a bit like if Who Wants to Be a Millionaire wasn't televised. Uh, except for the bit where they go into the studio and then at the end they come out and announce that they won a lot of money or not very much money and describe the process of being asked questions by Jeremy Clarkson. Everybody is in awe of you and wants to know all about the evil dungeon, but the constant attention soon becomes tiring and you resolve to set off on another quest as soon as possible. Besides, there is a new threat to Alansia which is gathering strength in the east. Before you set off, you decide to spend some of your hard-earned prize money. You commission a small castle to be built for you on the south bank of the River Cock while you were away, and with the remaining 6,000 gold pieces, you decide to hire soldiers to make an army. Recently, there have been sightings of a large number of orcs and goblins in the Forest of Fiends. There is a rumour that their leader is Aglax, the Shadow Demon. A shadow demon, as everybody knows, is a servant of the demon princes, and a commander of the Legion of the Damned. Since their banishment to the Void after the First Battle of Titan, however, the demon princes were thought to have been defeated forever. And yet, one of their servants is now reported to have been seen. This tale comes from an old scavenger calling himself Drek, who discovered a ruined temple near Zengis. So nice to see some of the background from Titan the guide to the world of fighting fantasy making its way into this book. Scratching around in the dirt in search of anything he might be able to sell, Drek found a black clay pot, corked and sealed with black wax. His curiosity proved too much for him. He broke the pot on a stone, hoping that it might contain gold or jewels. But his excitement soon turned to terror at the sight of what happened next. As soon as the black pot broke apart, Drek was deafened by the most hideous and evil cry he had ever heard in his life. Slowly, a mist started to form, growing ever larger and darker, until it coalesced in the shape of a black robe wrapped around a body that was invisible, save only for two pulsating, blood-red eyes. So, shadow demons closely resemble, but are legally distinct from ringwraiths, it would appear. Drek screamed in total fear, but the shadow demon he had released simply turned and disappeared. The chaos spawn was to grow again on Titan. On the strength of Drek's story, you post recruitment notices all over Fang. The honour of fighting alongside someone of your renown, with the added bonus of payment in gold, draws a long line of hopeful warriors outside the tavern, where you intend to hire your soldiers. Many are alone, others come in groups, but all are eager to sign up. Some tell of old adventures, others of monsters slain. But you recognise the qualities you seek, and before nightfall your troops are chosen. Never any shortage of people willing to sign up for the chance to die a horrible death on a lonely battlefield. It's one of the sort of low-key saddest things about the human condition. Not knowing what dangers you will face, you decide not to hire all the warriors who have come so as to have some gold left for the journey. You count the commission sheets and find that you have hired 100 warriors, 50 dwarves, 50 elven archers, and 20 knights. So we'll note those down on the adventure sheet... Having dwarves and elves in the same army strikes me as asking for problems with camp discipline. In the morning, you buy food provisions and baggage mules. When everything is paid for, you are left with 700 gold pieces, which you put in a wooden chest and strap to one of the mules. That's a lovely touch. Yeah, the paymaster's chest, a vital part of any baggage train, and really nice to see that represented here. You make your way to the town square where your small army is assembled. Each unit leader is handed a yellow banner, with the symbol of a burning sword emblazoned across it. To the cheers of the citizens of Fang, you lead your army out through the east gate towards an unknown and deadly foe. So there's the background. First section proper. You have marched no more than 200 yards when a fat bearded man huffing and puffing runs up alongside you. He's dressed as a sea captain, although his uniform is dirty and crumpled and his grubby hat is dented. Begging your pardon, gasps the captain, but would you listen to my offer? I have just docked my ship in Fang and found everybody full of excitement. It seems you were the cause of it. They tell me that you are travelling east to fight some demon or something. Well, I don't know about any demons, but I am willing to take you and your men on my ship as far as Zengis, for... A small consideration. Just think of all those miles you won't have to walk. Sail up the River Cock in Captain Barnock's good ship Flying Toucan. Only fifty gold pieces am I asking for this luxury passage. Now that is a bargain, is it not? says the old sea dog. Do you want to sail on the Flying Toucan, or would you rather continue marching?' I'm pretty lazy, so I think I'm going to go on the Flying Toucan. Chance for some, well, Riverborne adventures as well. That's something I find hard to turn down. Following Captain Barnock, you lead your men down to the docks where the Flying Toucan is moored. It is an old ship, and like the captain, is in very poor condition. But this hardly comes as a surprise to you, as nothing of much worth ever comes out of Port Blacksand. You tell your men to go aboard and pay Captain Barnock his 50 gold pieces. So, gold now reduced to 650. The captain shouts the order to set sail and you watch the motley crew from the bridge as they haul on the ropes, climb the riggings and unfurl the sails. Within 20 minutes, Fang has faded from view as your river journey gets underway. Everybody is in high spirits and even the dwarves and elves forget their differences and chat together united in their desire to rid Alansia of the shadow demon. At the bow, you see a group of warriors leaning over the side of the ship, staring at the river. Suddenly, one of them points upriver and shouts, "'Look! A barrel! Floating towards us!' You look over the side and see the large sealed barrel bobbing along in the water. Do you want to order one of your men to dive in, in order to haul the barrel out, or would you rather sail on without stopping? Oh, curiosity!' Curiosity, my Achilles heel, obviously, I'm going to get someone to dive into the water. A bare-chested warrior dives into the river and swims to the barrel. A rope is thrown to him, and he ties this round the barrel before being hauled up by the deckhands. With a buzz of excitement, the lid is prized off the barrel, but the contents are disappointing. The barrel is half-filled with apples. Do you want to hand them round or toss them over side? Er... who doesn't like an apple? Um, Unless they're rotten in some way. I'm going to hand the apples round, giving of gifts, and largesse is a responsibility of a good commander. As anyone in Fang could tell you, a barrel floating down the river Cock is not an unfamiliar sight. It happens at least once a month, and the citizens of Fang have learned through bitter experience to let it float by and out to sea the barrels are put into the river by a mad hag who always poisons the apples first and this is no exception roll one die so it's a 1 2 a 3 4 or a 5 6 are our options i get a 1 glorious half an hour after eating the apples some of the soldiers start being sick yourself included deduct 4 points from your stamina and 1 point from your skill this is going well Skill now 9. Stamina now 17. Their health rapidly deteriorates and 2 die quickly. Before the day is over, 15 in all have died. Make the deductions on your adventure sheet and also deduct 2 points from your luck. Luck now 8. So what am I going to lose? Uh, I guess I should hang on to the knights as cavalry is a useful thing to have. I've got most warriors. I could lose some of those but I don't like elves. So I'm going to have all of the people who die be elves. Now down to 35 elves. I don't know, you live for a couple of thousand years and then some idiot makes you eat a poisoned apple. Not the most heroic way to go. You resolve in future not to be distracted from your main objective. I'm willing to bet that at some point in the future... Being distracted from your main objective is literally required in order to proceed. As she rounds a bend in the river, the flying toucan suddenly comes under attack. A large fireball flies through the air toward you, hurled from the wooden catapult that is stationed on the south bank. Under the covering fire, 20 river raiders jump into their log canoes and paddle quickly over to the flying toucan. There is a picture of the fireball zooming towards the toucan and indeed zooming towards the reader. It's very clever actually. The artist Nick Williams has used lots and lots of black to allow the white of the the fireball to really stand out. So it's uh, chiaroscuro, is that the the word I'm looking for? Uh, I think it might be. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's a really effective piece of art, and you can see the raiders on their canoes coming towards you, and the reflection of the burning light on the water is very nice as well. Anyway, test my luck. Five, I am lucky. Luck now down to seven. The fireball whistles by between the masts and lands harmlessly in the river. Before the river raiders close with your ship, another fireball is flung from the catapult. Test your luck again. Ten. I am unlucky. Luck. Now six. So uh, in about five sections, I've lost four points of luck. That's pretty grim. The fireball crashes into the mainmast and drops on the deck, killing five of your men. Five elves, is it? Yes, it is. Now down to 30 elves. Two dwarves quickly smother the fireball with wet blankets, averting a fire on board. The river raiders are obviously unaware of the number of soldiers on board your ship, otherwise they would not have attacked with only 20 men. As they draw closer, no more fireballs are released by the catapult, and you must decide what to do. Do you want to order the elves to loose their arrows at the raiders, or would you rather let the raiders climb aboard? Oh, the elves are archers, I might need to hang on to them. Uh, But yes, they can earn their keep, the survivors. I think we'll have them... uh, Loose a volley at the raiders, see if he can drive them off without needing to give battle. The elves line up along the side of the ship and fire their arrows at the surprised raiders. Their aim is deadly. Eight raiders are killed with the first volley. The remaining raiders realise it would be suicidal to press home their attack and turn their canoes around to paddle back to shore as quickly as possible. A great cheer goes up from the deck of the ship as you sail river away from the routed raiders. That's nice that you get the opportunity to decide on some tactics. It's already making use of your soldiers as a resource. Very nice design. You sail on without incident for another hour when someone spots a log floating down river with a man lying across it face down and motionless his limbs trailing in the water. Do we want to rescue him? I think we do. A warrior dives into the water and swims over to the log he's dead shouts the warrior and there's an orc knife sticking out of his stomach there's also a gold key hanging from the neck on a piece of string shall i take it uh yes yes i do i want the key give me the key keys are good we love keys the warrior takes the key from around the dead man's neck before letting him drift on down river to the sea and a watery grave the warrior then swims back to the ship and hands you the key inscribed on the barrel you see the number Two two two. Wow. I wonder how many items with numbers on we're going to have to collect over the course of this adventure. If there's one thing Ian Livingston likes, it's making you collect things with numbers on. Making a mental note of the number, you slip the key inside your pocket and order Captain Barnock to sail on. A few miles upriver, you come across a bearded man with ragged hair standing on the north bank. He is dressed in animal furs and is waving his arms at you, gesturing for you to stop. Do you wish to sail over to the man to investigate, or sail on? Well, we were told not to pay any attention to distractions, but literally the last distraction gave us a key with a number on, so we will obviously sail over to investigate. You sail to the north bank to find out what the ragged man wants. As you draw closer, nine other men emerge from the bushes, but do not raise their weapons. The one who waved to you drops his arms and shouts... Greetings, stranger. I and my fellow Northmen have heard of your noble quest and wish to join your army. For ten gold pieces a man we will fight by your side to the death if duty calls. Do you wish to hire the Northmen or would you refuse their offer? Well, we do need to replenish our troops a little bit so I think we will take them up on the offer. So we're now down to 550 gold. You pay the leader of the Northmen 100 gold pieces and give the order for him and his men to climb on board ship. As you set sail once more, the leader walks over to you. Despite his stare from piercing blue eyes, you feel you can trust him. My name is Lars, he says with a warm smile. Would you allow me to bestow a gift upon you? Ah, uh, yes, I would. I would allow that, very happily. Greeks bearing gifts, not Northmen. Lars reaches inside his furs and pulls out a long curved tooth attached to a leather thong. This is the tooth of a yeti. Lars says with pride. If you wear it, you will never be attacked by werewolves or any other lycanthropes. It is my wish that you should have it as you are prepared to die to save Alansia. You let Lars place the tooth around your neck and tell him as much as you know about the shadow demon as you sail on upriver. He does quite like a lycanthrope, Ian Livingstone, so this feels like a very handy item to have. Some time later, Captain Barnock walks over to you and says... Ah, we'll soon be dropping anchor for the night. Would you and your men like to sleep here on the deck of my ship, or would you prefer to find somewhere more comfortable on land? I'm not letting this roguish fellow out of my sight. We'll sleep on deck, thanks. Easily end up with him just sailing off. Not long after midnight, something disturbs your sleep, and you wake to see a bright moonlit sky. Barely moving your head, you look left and right and see a shadow moving near some barrels tied amidships. On the bridge there is no sign of the lookout, and you immediately sense danger. Grabbing your sword you tiptoe towards the barrels crouched down. Something that glints in the moonlight is suddenly hurled at you without warning. Instinctively you duck. So I've got to test our skill of nine. Twelve That's more than nine. You react too slowly and are struck by a silver trident um, we get to roll one dice to see how badly we've been tridented. I rolled a two. It's a 50-50 roll. You let out an agonised cry and clutch at your throat where the trident spike is lodged. You fall forward and crash to the deck, slain by a lone fishman. Your adventure is over. So that's kind of cool in the sense that it's effectively uh, test your luck or test your skill or die... But Ian Livingstone's put an additional level of randomness in there so that the effects of failing the skill roll are not immediately fatal. But it still has the potential to kill you, as I have just learned. So how long have I been recording for? Half an hour, that's a pretty early death. So we will definitely invoke the Sausagey Finger bookmark rule. And uh, we will assume that we rolled a 4-6 on the 50-50 die roll. An ignominious fate to be murdered by a fishman. I can't help but feel. I mean, I know that being stabbed in the throat is being stabbed in the throat, but have you been stabbed in the throat by a berserker or a chaos warrior or a ninja? Your family could go. Well, that's at least an A-list enemy that's killed my loved one. Fishmen. We're the best will in the world, and I like a fishman. am never going to be A-listers. They're not even B-listers, they're C-listers at best. Having not died from the trident, instead, a sharp pain runs down your arm from the place in your shoulder where the trident's spikes are lodged. Deduct two points from your stamina. Stamina now 15. This has got all the hallmarks of a really cursed recording. Like sometimes I just seem to roll so well, and sometimes I just seem to roll so badly. And this has got all the hallmarks of... of... The dice absolutely trying to kill me at the earliest possible stage. Gritting your teeth, you pull the trident out of your shoulder. A nimble figure runs out from behind the barrels and dives over the side of the ship into the water, making the quietest of splashes. You look over the side but see no head rise to the surface. Whoever or whatever attacked you must be an excellent underwater swimmer. You walk over to the barrels and see watery webbed prints On the dock, perhaps those made by a fishman. Test your luck. My luck is six, but I do manage to roll a double one, so I am lucky, and my luck now reduced to five. By now, many of your men are awake. None of them appear to have come to any harm, apart from the lookout, who is nursing a sore head, having been attacked from behind by the midnight raider. An extra man is put on watch while everyone else settles down to sleep once again. Not long after dawn, Captain Barnock gives the order to set sail upriver. Two hours later, the tranquillity of the river is suddenly disturbed by a shout from the crow's nest of River pirates! River pirates! Captain Barnock reaches for his telescope and fumes and curses as he focuses on the ship coming down river at full speed. He hands you the telescope and you see the reason for his concern. The pirate ship is of the type built by Northmen exceptionally sturdy, with a huge iron ramming spike protruding from the bow. Double rows of oars extend from each side of the ship, giving added speed. The Flying Toucan is obviously no match for the pirate ship, which steers a ramming course. Captain Barnock starts to fluster, not knowing what to do. Will you order him to raise a flag of surrender, turn the Flying Toucan towards north bank, or order the Flying Toucan to turn about and outrun the pirate ship? I imagine we will outnumber the raiders. It's possible that if we surrender, the Northmen on our crew might come to our aid, but I don't want to gamble on that. I think the only sensible option is to turn the Flying Toucan towards the North Bank and hope that we can set up a battle line on land and demonstrate that we are not to be meddled with. "'Captain Barnack has the Flying Toucan moored to the river bank long before the pirate ship is upon it, and you order your men to jump ashore. Quickly, you line up the elven archers along the bank and order them to be ready to fire on the command. When the pirate ship is close enough, you shout across to its captain, telling him not to ram the Flying Toucan as there is no treasure on board. If he wants treasure, he will have to come ashore and fight for it. You see the captain, examining your troops through his telescope, and you smile.' Satisfied that he will be surprised to encounter such a strong force. Your plan works. The pirate captain shouts out new orders to his men and you watch the pirate ship sail past the flying toucan, down river and out of sight. At one point to your luck. Luck now six. Yes, get me making a good decision. Captain Barnock begins to cheer loudly until a coughing fit overtakes him he has to sit down to recover. But in less than half an hour... All of your troops and baggage are aboard the Flying Toucan once more, and you set sail upriver for Zengis. This is a much lengthier river adventure than I was expecting. It's weird, I did love this book as a child, and I must have played it a couple of times, but I cannot remember anything much about it. One of those ones where I think just the core idea of the book was what lodged in my sort of nine, ten year old brain. It is late in the afternoon when the towers and rooftops of Zengis come into view. Captain Barnock appears to relax a little, knowing that he will soon be moored up in the safety of the town jetty. Before going ashore, you appoint a warrior named Lexon as your second-in-command, and tell him to lead your men to a field outside the town walls and to pitch camp there. You don't want them getting into trouble, and you want them well-fed and rested for the next day's march. You tell Lexon that you will spend the night in Zengis in order to recruit more troops, and perhaps find out some rumours about Aglax the Shadow Demon. As your troops march down the gangplank of the Flying Toucan, you bid farewell to Captain Barnock. You walk through the main gates of the town and decide to head for the nearest tavern, a place where you might expect to find both warriors and rumours. As you walk down the narrow street between the old wooden houses, you suddenly catch sight of a gold ring lying in the gutter. Do you want to pick it up or carry on looking for the tavern? Is it going to be a ring with a number inscribed upon it? I cannot take the chance that this isn't in some way a required item, so I will pick up the ring. You examine the ring and see that it is inscribed with the number 45. What a surprise. Suddenly you feel a tap on your shoulder. Whirling around, you are confronted by a huge bald man looking angrily at you. There's a picture of the bald man as well. An ugly scar runs across his face from above his left ear to the bottom of his right cheek. His bulging muscles stretch his black leather tunic and you are quick to notice that he is brandishing a battle axe. The throwing axe is strapped to his leg. He points an accusing finger into your face and growls, That's my ring, stranger. Give it to me or die. You notice that his fat fingers are too big for the ring and decide obviously he is lying. So there is a picture of the axe man and it's pretty good. Uh, All of the details in the text are present in the artwork he's got a very ugly scowly face yeah decent bit of work uh we've got a choice though give him the ring don't think so run away down the street i mean possibly a good idea (laughs) i mean it's certainly the funniest the funniest thing to do that's fighting talk where i come from and where i come from we run away from fights which to be fair is generally speaking, the absolute best self-defence technique. But this isn't a pub car park, and I'm a professional adventurer and not a tremendous physical coward, so I'm gonna fight the Axeman. The Axeman stands back, cutting a figure of H through the air with his battle axe, which he wields in both hands. He's so good at doing these little details that just bring the world to life in such a small number of words. I really like that about Ian Livingstone. Never a wasted word. The Axeman has a skill of eight and a stamina of eight. So for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Axeman. He reduced me to 11 stamina and this would be the point at which I'd be desperately cramming sausage rolls and Cornish pasties into my face in order to stem the bleeding. But, on this occasion, we don't have any provisions, so we just have to go onwards. While taking his axe, you spot a leather pouch on the axeman's belt. Before you have time to open it, however, you see two town guards running up the street towards you. Do you want to open the pouch and risk being caught? Would you rather run off with only the golden ring? I see collecting things with numbers on. I'm going to risk being caught by the guards. You cut the pouch from the axeman's belt and tuck it inside your clothing as the town guards approach, their spears pointed at your chest. They challenge you. You tell them of your quest and describe how the axeman tried to rob you. They look at each other, not sure whether to believe you. Test your luck. Luck of six. I roll... A three. One of the guards nods his head and says, Yes, I saw the the army myself setting up camp outside Zengis. The adventurer must be telling the truth. We'll let you go this time, but don't get into any more trouble. You breathe a sigh of relief and assure the guards that your only wish is to recruit more warriors. You set off quickly down the street before attracting the attention of anybody else. You feel a lump inside your clothing and suddenly remember the leather pouch. You take it out and untie the cord that is keeping it closed. Turning it upside down, you shake the contents out onto your hand and are alarmed to discover a scorpion on your palm test your luck. Oh, I'm so doomed. I should have known when you hand out a ring with a number on it that's an obvious key item, nothing else good is going to be on the body. Oh wow, I know another three. So actually, after a very shaky start, my dice rolling has really been on point. My luck is now four, however. The scorpion does not sting you, and you quickly shake it off your hand, You think about all the trouble you've had already in Zengis, and resolve not to be diverted any longer from your plan to find a tavern. Two minutes later, you see a crooked wooden sign hanging over the door of an old wooden building. A crude drawing of a dragon is painted on it above the words, The Black Dragon. There is much shouting and laughter coming from inside the tavern, and you decide to enter at once. You climb a few well-worn stone steps and push open the heavy door. Even though it is daytime, the tavern is dark inside and candles are burning as the small grubby windows let in virtually no daylight. From the doorway you can see that the tavern is bustling with life, although none of it looks too savoury. Groups of cloaked vagabonds are huddled together in dark corners, while boisterous rogues, much the worse for the ale they have already drunk, sit in the middle of the tavern, insulting all who pass by them, including the harassed barmaids, who have to squeeze between the tables carrying their loaded drinks. You look from table to table and decide where to sit. So there's uh, pictures of the various near-do-wells sat in the bar and a very put-upon-looking barmaid. Yeah, decent bit of work. But we've got a choice. Sit at the bar, sit with the drunken rogue or sit with three vagabonds. Um, I'm going to sit at the bar. You squeeze between the tables and sit down on a high stool at the far end of the bar. The barman is a huge, ugly brute. If he said his father was an ogre, he would believe him. Wash your poison," he grunts. To which you reply, "A mug of apple juice." "Apple juice!" roars the barman out loud. "Apple juice, sir! Ah, the young squib wants apple juice." "I suppose you'll want milk if we don't have apple juice," laughs the barman, as his customers look round to see who he is being mocked. "Well, you've come to the wrong place," he continues. "We only serve devil's brew here." Do you think you can take a pint of that? Uh, do you wish to drink a pint of Devil's Brew or insist on apple juice and at the same time tell the barman to mind his manners? Well, that's spoiling for a rumble. So I think we'll just try the pint of Devil's Brew and see what happens. You put the mug to your lips and down the foul-tasting drink in one go. Gitchwater water! You exclaim contemptuously, slamming the mug back down on the bar. The barman sneers, The drinks are on me if you can do that a second time. If you would like to accept the challenge, you can, or would you rather get on with your business? Let's try and get on with business. You tell the barman that you do not have time or inclination to make a fool of yourself by performing drunken tricks for his seedy customers, and that you are here to hire brave warriors to fight Aglax the Shadow Demon. A frown pushes down his dark, bushy eyebrows as he suddenly looks intensely interested in what you are saying well why didn't you tell me that in the first place he says with a smile which suddenly lights up his face i know all the best fighters in town most of them are here now within half an hour you have another fifteen warriors signed up You tell them where to go to join your waiting army they are to meet lexon who will pay them ten gold pieces each so everyone gets paid ten gold pieces equitable now down to four hundred gold pieces You finally shake hands with the big barman and leave the black dragon to find other things or people of interest in Zengis. After passing a row of old wooden houses, you come across a curious shop. There is nothing displayed in the window except straw and an empty birdcage. Brown paint is flaking off the window frame and also the door, above which is a sign which reads, pets, normal and unnatural. Do you want to enter the pet shop or would you rather keep on walking? I find pet shops wordlessly depressing, so I'm actually going to keep on walking. Further along the street, you come to another shop. The window is full of old things, all piled on top of one another. Boxes, tins, clothes, tools, pottery, carvings and curios are all heaped up like a pile of jumble. A pawnbroker's sign, somewhat the worse for wear, hangs above the door. Do you want to have a look? I do. Never know what you're going to find in one of these joints, which is always a bit exciting. Inside the shop... You are greeted by a friendly old woman who calls herself Bonnie. Have a look around, there's a price on everything you can see, she says in a jolly voice. I don't really know how to be jolly. Jolly isn't really in my wheelhouse. Two of the walls are lined with shelves from floor to ceiling. They're crammed with more junk collected over the years, most of it covered in a thick layer of dust. You cast your eye along the shelves and pull out several things which may be of interest, each with its own price tag. So we've got a brass owl, a copper lantern, a helmet, an ivory box, and a green vase or vase. Lanterns sound good. I'm going to go lantern, helmet, box, owl, and ignore the vase, which costs 20 gold pieces. So that comes to 30 gold pieces in total. You arrive at an old building which looks like a barn with large wooden doors at the front. A man is standing in front of the doors and there is much shouting and cheering coming from inside the building. You step towards the entrance, but the man bars your way. Pie-eating competition, he says gruffly. Five gold pieces to go in, and then you can join the competition against Big Belly Man, if you think you can out-eat him. Mind you, nobody ever has. I think I should tell you. Do you want to pay the entrance fee and go in, or would you rather walk on? How can you pass up? The opportunity to do competitive eating in a game book format. That is an unbelievably alluring thing to me. So I'm going to pay the entrance fee and go in. Gold now 365. You pass through the entrance and find yourself in the middle of a packed crowd of cheering people. Some are standing on the floor, craning their necks in order to get a better view of what's happening in the centre of the barn. Others are sitting on the benches of makeshift grandstand which rise on the other three walls. You squeeze your way through the crowd to find out what is going on until you come to a circular wooden barrier inside which two men are sitting at a table, one at each end, gorging themselves on two huge pies. The man to your left is so absolutely enormous that a half-moon shape has been cut out of the table where he is sitting so that he can reach his pie. He is quite old and completely bald. He has a monocle jammed in his left eye. His gross body looks all the more obese because of the tight black leotard that he is wearing with the name Big Belly embroidered in yellow letters across it. So, this would appear to be a reference to enormously popular UK wrestler Big Daddy, formerly known as the Battling Guardsman. I love professional wrestling and I've got a real fondness for the old world of sport. British catch-as-catch-can style, but despite being unbelievably popular, Shirley Crabtree was a genuinely terrible thing for the art of pro wrestling, because while he had charisma in buckets, he really couldn't work. He really couldn't put on compelling matches, and say so the art of professional wrestling was denigrated in favour of what was an empty spectacle. I mean, even Hulk Hogan, who famously wasn't the best worker in the world, could still put together reasonably compelling matches. But yeah, Shirley Crabtree was just so limited in the ring. So limited in the ring. Anyway, that's my small digression into the history of British professional wrestling. Big Belly's opponent, himself a huge man-orc, looks small in comparison. A dwarf, who you are told is the referee, is standing on the table between them, making sure that all the pie is being eaten and none dropped on the floor. Suddenly, Big Belly Man half-rises and punches the air with both hands, and a loud cheer goes up to celebrate another victory. The dwarf calls for order, and then announces the result. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the rat-and-turnip-pie-eating competition is Big Belly Man! Another cheer echoes through the room before the dwarf can continue. When the noise has died down, he proclaims, after a five minute interval, Big Belly Man will challenge anyone to a fish and custard pie eating competition. All challengers sign up here, please. Do you want to enter the competition? Of course I do. You find yourself the only challenger, everyone else being unwilling to take on the great Big Belly Man. The dwarf tells you that there is a purse of 100 gold pieces for the person who can defeat Big Belly Man, and the entry fee is 10. So gold now 355. You pay him the money and sit down at the table to await the return of the champion. Yet another cheer goes up as the crowd parts to let the big man back to the table. Two more dwarves follow him, each wearing cook's clothes and carrying a tray with an enormous steaming pie on top. Big Belly Man sits at the table and shuffles his chair forward to squeeze his stomach into the recess. The pie is then put in front of you, and your nostrils twitch at the mingled aroma of fish and custard. You are handed a wooden spoon, and the dwarf shouts, a Steady! Go! You plunge your spoon into the pie and begin to eat. To determine who wins, dice must be rolled. Roll one die and add this number to your skill score. On making a total of the number, roll the die again. And add the new number to the big belly man's pie-eating ability, which is 13. Note this total, 2. Roll again until one of you hits 40. I have no chance of beating this man, I don't think. But I guess I'm not going to do it live on mic because that would be quite tedious. So for the first time ever, in order to simulate a pie-eating contest, I'm going to roll some dice. Big Belly Man won, perhaps inevitably, uh, in three rounds, which I think is the earliest he could possibly win. That's disappointing. The crowd goes wild as Big Belly Man celebrates victory once again. In his now familiar way, he punches the air with his hands and roars in satisfaction. You waste no time in making your way to the exit, feeling more than a little sick after gorging yourself on the foul pie. Deduct one point from your stamina, because I've got so much stamina to play with now. Stamina ten. Feeling rather like an inflated blood beast, you walk off along the street. On the left you see an alleyway, at the bottom of which is a pile of barrels. Do you wish to go down the alley to investigate or do you rather walk on up the street? I think walk on up the street. Nothing good happens in alleys. In fantasy stories. At the corner of the street you arrive at a stone building. It has a sign painted on the window in crude whitewashed letters which reads Max Marauders swords for hire. Do you wish to enter the building or keep walking round the corner to the left? We'll enter the building. Do to hire some swords? The street door opens into a single room in the centre of which two men are engaged in practice sword fight with wooden swords. They are being watched by seven other men. At the far end of the room, a striking blonde woman wearing leather armour is shouting out instructions to the two fighters. Stop, she shouts suddenly. Take a rest while I see what the intruder wants. She walks over to you and says... I'm Max and these are my boys. Do you want to join them or hire them? And you reply that you may be interested in hiring them. My boys are the best. 200 gold pieces and all 10 of us are yours. Uh, mm, are they though? Are they? I don't think I can justify spending twice what I'd spend per person. My purse is getting lighter all the time. So I will refuse the offer and leave. The street soon turns to the left again as the shadows of darkness start to creep out from the sides of the buildings. You decide that it's time to find an inn. Surely I should go and sleep with my men in a display of solidarity. Apparently not. One called Helen's House is the first that you come across and it offers rooms for one gold piece a night. Do you want to spend the night at Helen's house? Yeah, sure. The door opens into a small reception room which has low oak beams and white walls. In the wall opposite, a fire is burning in the hearth, and above it is a painting of a small sailing boat. A man is sitting in a high-backed leather chair in front of the fire, vigorously polishing a silver cup. You clear your throat to get his attention, he turns towards you and says, I beg your pardon, but I didn't hear you come in. As you can see, I'm busy polishing up this cup which we were at sailing, but I don't want to bore you with my sailing stories. A room will cost you two gold pieces, including breakfast.' You pay for the room and wait for the man to give you the key. He stands up, but instead leans against the hearth and looks admiringly at the painting. Ah, Hiram was a great boat with a great crew. We left all the other boats clean behind and won all our races except for one. That was only lost because of Spike's navigation. Uh, Do you want to butt in and ask the man for the key or be patient and listen to the story? We'll be patient and listen to the story. The man whose name you learn is... Obigui goes on at length about a whole series of races, walking around the crew and mimicking the antics of the crew. Would you like to see a drawing of the crew? He finally asks. Uh, sure. I mean, we've gone this far with politeness. Obigui opens a cupboard drawer and pulls out a leather-bound book. He opens the book at a marked page and hands it to you. There are eight people in the picture, each dressed in heavy oilskins. That's me, he says proudly, pointing out the drawing of himself. And that's our skipper, Priest, with a funny hat on. Spikes, the other one, with his hair sticking up, and Ewan is the young one, going bald before his time. Werewolf's the bearded one, Quill's son is the one with the long hair, and the couple there are Clack and his last Wells. Perhaps one day we'll take on the Connor himself. He's the best in all Alansia. Sails in the old world across the Western Ocean, but his reputation is known to all. Well, that's enough about me. What about you? So there's a picture of the crew, and one of them is indeed wearing a very stupid hat. Otherwise, yeah, they, they look broadly like sailor types. Yeah, they're sailors. You decide to tell Obergee about your quest, and his eyes widen in amazement. I'm afraid I'm too old to join your campaign, but I would like to help your cause, he says before disappearing into a back room. He reappears in a moment holding a magnificent sword. If this cannot slay a demon, then nothing can. He says with a smile. Leave me yours and you can have it. You examine the sword and see that it is of remarkable craftsmanship. You do not hesitate to make the swap. Add one point to your skill. Skill now back up to a respectable ten. Obergee hands you the key to your room and wishes you good night as you climb the stairs. So, my superparenthood adventure is listening to boring people talk. You lock the door behind you and stomp gratefully into the soft bed. You are asleep in seconds and do not wake until the morning when there is a loud knocking at the door. "'Breakfast is ready!' shouts Obergee. After a large plate of ham and eggs, you feel ready to take on Aglax himself. The peaceful sleep and plentiful food have done you a lot of good, and two points to your stamina. Stamina now... twelve! You finally say farewell to Obergee and walk out into the street. After walking less than a hundred yards, the street ends in a junction. Do you wish to go left, or do you wish to go right?' I okay, go left. Is this the first left-right we've had? Feels like it might be, and I've been recording for over an hour. That's pretty cool. The street turns sharply right, and you soon find yourself back at the main entrance gate to Zengis. Remembering your promised Alexon, you decide to return to your waiting army. You arrive at the camp before noon and are greeted enthusiastically. You give the order to march. Do you wish to cross the River Cock and march south, or would you rather march east towards the Forest of the Fiends? Um... Something about orcs and goblins in the Forest of the Fiends. So I guess we will cross the River Cock and march south. The army marches east along the river bank until you come to a wooden bridge. A crossing takes place without any problem, and the river is soon left behind as you march southward across the pagan plain. By late afternoon, you have put many miles behind you. You give the order to halt to enable your warriors to drink at a watering hole. Unknown to you, however, the water has been poisoned by one of Aglix's spies, and many of your warriors begin to fall sick. Within an hour, half of them are too ill to march. Do you wish to wait for them to recover, or head south with 15 hand-picked warriors who are still well? Well, I think we probably need to go and find an antidote, so I'm going to take 15 hand-picked warriors and head south. Two hours later, you make out a lone figure walking slowly towards you. You can soon see that this is an old woman hobbling along, clutching a wooden stick for support. As you walk past her, she holds out her hand and says in a crooky voice, "'Spare me a gold piece!' Do you wish to give her a gold piece or march on without stopping? Is this the crone? Is this the hag, I should say, who loves poisoning water supplies? Um, I'm going to give her a gold piece. The old woman thanks you profusely and reaches out for your right hand with both of hers. "'Let me read your palm,' she says. She opens your hand pulls it across her crinkled face and lets out a series of oos and ahs. Finally, she looks up and says, You are an adventurer on a very important mission. To fulfil that mission, make sure you drink the waters of the gods. Death awaits you if you don't. Without saying another word, she hobbles off and you march south. Can we trust her? I do think that might have been the hag. You come across a worn track which runs north and south. You decide to follow it to the south and soon you arrive at a signpost which also points south and reads Karn five miles. Do you wish to keep heading south towards Karn or head south east? Um, I think to the east is the Starstone Caves so I guess we will head to Khan. The light is quickly fading as the village of Khan comes into view. The village is a well-known stopover for travellers and is the last human village for many a mile. It comprises some 50 stone buildings, many of which are taverns, general stores and gambling halls. You take your men into an inn and tell them to eat well and get to bed early, as you intend to leave at first light in the morning. You decide to walk round the village after your own meal. You wish to enter the Blue Pig Tavern to find a guide, or would you rather go to the gambling house or go to the tavern? Taverns have served us well." The tavern is quite small inside and there are not many customers. The atmosphere seems friendly, so you make your way over to the bar to ask if the barman knows any guides. He points to the table in the far corner and says, Ask old thog over there, he used to be the best. You walk over to the table and sit down next to a battle-scarred old warrior. You explain that you want to hire a guide. Where do you want to go? He asks in a deep voice. Will you reply, through the Forest of Fiends or to the Starstone Caves? We'll go for the Forest of Fiends. That is a perilous journey, he says slowly, and I'm not as young as I was. But I'd rather have danger than sit around here all day. I'll do it. For twenty gold pieces, I'll take you through the dreaded forest. You pay Thog his fee and go back with him to the inn. Early next morning you rouse your men and are soon marching back to your waiting army. Thog starts telling you about his old adventures, which after two hours becomes extremely boring. Thankfully, you arrive back at the watering hole, where your army is once again fully fit and ready to march. Thog leads you directly east, and after crossing one of the tributaries that feeds the river cock, you come to the edge of the sombre forest. Dark, twisted trees reach up to form a threatening wall. There is much muttering in low voices, but then Thog shouts cheerfully, Come on! "'Follow me. It's just a few trees and a couple of monkeys.' As you step into the forest, the daylight quickly fades under a thick canopy of leaves overhead, and the whole place is deathly quiet. "'The creatures are watching us,' whispers Thog, "'but the little ones round the edge won't do us any harm. "'It's later on we should get worried. We'll swing right here to avoid the tree-man.' Your army threads its way through the dark forest until it penetrates deep into its heart. We're really getting a tour of many different biomes in this one. I'm enjoying that very much, although we have yet to fight an actual battle, which seems a little bit disappointing. You pass by a stagnant pool, above which the air is thick with hovering insects. In the middle of the pool, you can see the corner of a wooden box sticking out of the weed-covered water. Do you wish to wade in to retrieve the box? I surely do. You are bitten by dozens of insects as you wade out to the box. You pull the box out of the thick, clinging mud, then climb back out of the pool. You prise the box open and find that it is full of bones, which are of no use to you at all. You hurl the box back into the pool, and then suddenly you feel quite dizzy. You are forced to sit down and you break out into a sweat. Your temperature rises and you are trembling with fever. A mosquito has infected you with a virulent form of malaria. Lose eight points from your stamina. So stamina now. Four. If you are still alive, roll three dice against your skill total. So skill of ten. All right, roll. And eleven. So just missed. Your temperature increases and the fever becomes worse as the hours roll by. You slip in and out of consciousness until your body finally gives in to the deadly virus your adventure is over. So a little bit disappointing, but malaria is a pretty classic way for a soldier to go. Many a campaign where disease has killed more people than the enemy, so I can't complain too much about that. It's going to be really interesting digging into this one. Feels like a very Ian Livingstone book, and I mean that broadly as a positive on first impressions but I'm going to go away, dive into the nitty-gritty of it, and come back to you very shortly with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! So, what do I make of Armies of Death, and was my youthful nostalgia justified? Yes and no is the all-too-predictable answer. I'm not sure I've been so violently on the fence about a game book for a good long while. It is a really interesting one to unpack and to try and understand. Structurally, it is quite simple. Although there's places where you can choose where to go, as in the opening, where you can either travel by boat or by land, and thus have quite different experiences of the early story, whichever you end up choosing the route to the town of Zengis is quite linear and you will always end up there. Similarly, you can choose whether to explore the caves to the southeast of Zengis and whether to go to the village of Khan. but each of these locations are fairly prescriptive once you actually arrive. And linear designs are interesting. I don't actually object to linear sections when there's interesting encounters along the way. I think they are especially good when you're on the hunt for items, as you are in this case, because they're easy to work through systematically. If the encounter design is good, you still get to make lots of decisions, and it can still feel very interactive and immersive, because as long as you get to make choices, it doesn't matter that you might as well be walking down a long corridor, peeking in the rooms to either side. Immersion, for me at least, comes from a sense of agency, but that agency doesn't have to be a geographic. It can just be the freedom to explore each individual encounter in the way that I think best. And the encounters here are pretty good, not least because there's a pleasing mix of stakes. On the one hand, there's a goblin raining down arrows from the back of a wyvern. There's werewolf attacks, there's river pirates. But there's also the eating competition and the chance to accidentally buy and release Yaztromo's raven. I feel like that mix of the deadly and the pathetic is the true essence of fighting fantasy. And it's part of what makes this world feel so appealing to me. I think it's a particularly British sensibility. I don't want to be too essentialist about this sort of thing. I'm sure there are examples from elsewhere in the world. But when you think about British role-playing games and British game books, that slightly uncomfortable marriage of high adventure and low stakes grubbiness, it does feel somehow quite British to me. I also like that there's a contrast between the wilderness and the city. There's something very appealing about that, the feeling that being inside the city walls is a little bit safer than being outside, though there are still many urban dangers as well as opportunities. And That's something that speaks very much to the impression I get from medieval art and what you might tentatively term a medieval psychology. The idea that you have the place where people are and that's safe and outside there's all manner of strange things that could be going on. I like the NPCs that you encounter as well. Some of them are very nicely drawn. Uh, The fellow who gives you a magical sword, but only if you listen to his interminable stories about his past adventures, is a particular highlight. It's just a lovely little vignette. And I also like the way Ian Livingstone designs traps and puzzles. It's the sort of thing that, as a designer and a writer, I struggle with because I always want my world to feel real and to feel lived in and nothing is more artificial than making the barrier to a room be a door with three skulls nailed to it, each with a different number on, and each with a handy key that you can try in that skull. That is lunacy. But as a player, I absolutely love that sort of dungeon nonsense, and it doesn't break my immersion at all, because I think of it as an expression of security culture in the same way that putting a beware of the dog sign on your front gate might be an expression of English security culture. I find it very easy to imagine that this is simply how the denizens of a fantasy world understand the notion of security, that you have to give the people a chance to get through the door. Otherwise, what's the point? It's something I absolutely want to get better at as well, because I do enjoy Livingstone's inventiveness when it comes to this sort of thing. His encounters do tend to be a bit binary. When you rock up to an elf apparently trapped beneath a dangling sword, you know that it's going to be either a nice friendly conversation with an elf who'll give you some magic gubbins, or... It'll turn out to be an absolute maniac once you get them out. There's rarely much middle ground. He populates Alansia with a mixture of extremely friendly and nice people and pure psychopaths, which makes perfect sense for someone who grew up in Manchester. This being an Ian Livingstone book, you'll be needing more than a few items to complete it, and Armies of Death has his scavenger hunt tendencies writ large. There's an oracle in the caves, who requires a particularly eccentric list of items and information. They want a brass owl, a vase, for you to turn yourself invisible, and also a gold brooch. That's four different items you need to get, and you also need to pass a luck test, because clearly you just haven't jumped through enough hoops. Thankfully, in the case of three of them, it's fairly trivial to work out where you might get them, because they're easily available from the various shots in Zengis that you can't avoid happening across. The brooch is a bit less obvious, but the broadly linear structure, as I alluded to earlier, makes exploring the bits you've missed much easier. It's hard not to come away with the feeling that the Oracle is deliberately messing with you out of a combination of malice and boredom. Of course, to beat the final bad guy, you will also need another item and the knowledge of how to use it, which adds a second scavenger hunt to the plot. It's very Ian Livingstone in that respect. He does like gating the ending behind a laundry list of items, and you either make your peace with that or you don't. Personally, I'd rather there were slightly fewer items and clues that were strictly necessary, but I do admire the way he weaves so many things together into the narrative. Almost everything in this book has an impact later on in the story. There's only one true path to victory, but I didn't find working towards it all that onerous. There's just something pleasant about seeing how earlier actions affect later events. In particular, there's things in the final battle that depend on NPCs you've met and recruited to your cause. I love that it makes recruiting soldiers feel more than just adding numbers to your army. The people you have encountered matter as much to the outcome as sheer volume of troops. There's a cost to that though, when you create these elaborate item dependencies, I do think it requires some skill to present them in a way that doesn't start to erode immersion. When getting the Crystal of Light requires that you fight an axeman in an alley for a ring several days earlier, it can make you very aware that you're playing a game how did the ring get there, and why did it get there, is a reasonable question to ask yourself. And the more times you have to ask that question, the less real the world can end up seeming, because you end up with this solipsistic kind of world in which every single thing revolves around your central character, and everything that occurs in the universe only occurs in order to prepare your character for something later in their quest. It becomes very inward-looking, and you become aware that this is an artificial world that's been constructed purely for the benefit of the character, which is, I imagine, what people like Boris Johnson feel like literally all the time. Now, you can fix this to an extent by careful item placement, happening across a necessary key item. I'm going to use key as a placeholder example for any item which allows you to surmount an obstacle later in the adventure. And happening across a necessary key geographically close to the lock always feels less weird than happening across the necessary key further away. In the case of the magic ring, the fact that there's a tremendous distance between where you find the ring and where you use the ring partly creates that sense of unreality in the world. It's easy to imagine how a key might have ended up in a different room in the castle you're exploring, but much harder to imagine how it ended up on another continent. Happening across it in the first example feels natural, but happening across it in the second feels like winning the lottery, except not remotely satisfying. It's hard to shake the feeling that there's been too many coincidences that had to line up for you to find the key. Now, This isn't true of every kind of item. The rule of distance is inversely related to the generic utility of the item in question and the number of such items one can imagine existing in the fantasy world. So the lone key to a specific lock randomly turning up on different continents stretches credibility, but a skeleton key? That might pass muster, and a crowbar would probably be completely fine there are loads and loads of crowbars in the world. It's entirely reasonable that you happen to cross one. It's also worth pointing out that a chain of custody is merely a different type of distance. If you kill the wizard who owns the lock and loot the key from their body, it doesn't matter on which continent that took place. And for this reason, the absolute best kind of key is the NPC, because you can make them relevant in so many different situations that you can get away with almost anything. This is something that Armies of Death does really nicely. There's characters who can influence the final battle, despite you having met them early doors, and it doesn't stretch credibility. It provides some moments of real narrative satisfaction. NPCs are notoriously hard to do in game books, but the framing device of Armies of Death provides a ready excuse as to why they aren't doing anything to influence the plot until that crucial moment. The loneliness of command and the business of the camp being an excellent excuse not to feature them in every section. It's very easy to imagine that they're just off doing some soldier stuff. The final battle is in general a masterpiece of simple but effective design. There's a nice mixture of individual fights and larger set pieces that manage to convey the idea of a mass battle without getting too bogged down in the detail of which unit is where. It feels exciting and involving, But the fact that it works so well makes me wonder if the mass combat system was ever actually necessary. I think you could have got to the same end simply by having the player make decisions in the text to determine how many troops are lost to defeat each foe. The skirmish combat does work okay in practice, but it doesn't ever really come alive in the same way that the ordinary combat rules do. When I come across a big, tough monster, it has an impact. I look at its skill and go, oh no. I look at its stamina and go, double oh no. And then I look at the special rules and I throw the book across the room. But that has an impact, and you don't get that from just being told you've met 15 hobgoblins. With only numbers affecting the outcome of the skirmish battles, running into a group of 10 goblins is the same as running into a group of 10 chaos warriors or 10 trolls. And that just doesn't really feel quite right. The skirmish battles are quite few and far between. If you follow the correct path, you can avoid quite a few of them through making the right decisions. But there is a sense that actually it would have been more interesting rather than just rolling a dice a few times to go do you want to try and flank these hobgoblins or do you want to try and charge them and gain the element of surprise and then just have that play out maybe with a roll of a dice to indicate how many troops you lose off the back of it. It's a perfectly adequate system but it's not one that sparks joy. The other thing I will say about the final battle is it's a little bit underwhelming once you get to the final boss because it's a simple item check and then the story is over. I would have liked the opportunity to go toe-to-toe with the enemy general while the armies battle around us, or had the opportunity to make one more tactical decision to defeat him, but the item check is classic fighting fantasy finale material, so I cannot complain too much. And I have to say that Armies of Death broadly delivers on the fantasy of recruiting an army and leading them in the field as they approach and take part in the final battle. There's some nice elements of campaign life along the way, with your troops falling prey to various dangers in the world, usually poison, occasionally disease. I'd like to have seen even more campaign stuff in the book, if I'm honest. This is broadly a traditional fantasy picaresque narrative, with a layer of commanding an army smeared over the top. You've got a river adventure, a town adventure, a dungeon adventure, a wilderness adventure... All classic fighting fantasy tropes, and then you've got the army stuff kind of hanging around to one side. I think there were more opportunities in this book to explore the challenges facing armies in the field. I'd love to have seen foraging for supplies, I'd love to have seen building a defensive camp, or working out how to get a whole army across a river. Those are all classic situations that face armies on the move. I also would have liked to have seen a bit of how the presence of an army outside their gate affects Zengis. It would have been fascinating to have to convince the rulers of the city to provide supplies and deal with the inevitable discipline issues that come from having a couple of hundred professional murderers with their pay burning a hole in their pocket camped on your doorstep. There's some fabulous examples from history, particularly during the Crusades, when a crusading army rocking up outside the city was basically a major crisis for the people of that city and I'd have loved to have seen that explored a little bit. I think maybe Ian Livingstone has played it a little bit too safe with his design on this occasion. However the flip side of that is that by taking fewer risks Livingstone presents us with something that feels absolutely like a fighting fantasy book there's an abundance of callbacks to earlier books in the series and that combined with the familiar locations and the link of trial of the champions makes this book feel comfortingly familiar at a time in the franchise where, and I think it's fair to say the quality was not generally at the absolute highest. We get some nostalgia as Livingstone throws in a bunch of monsters from earlier game books including some fan favourites like The Shape Changer And also the Fishmen for some reason. And it's quite mad that the series have now got to the point where you can trade on nostalgia for the early books. 36 books in is pretty deep into any series. This being Ian Livingstone, we get a dwarf and an old man. In fact, we get a plethora of dwarves. We're spoiled for dwarves in this book. There are dwarves everywhere you look. If there's a big design weakness, it's that the dice can be very cruel in this adventure. Although the fights are generally very manageable, which is unusual because he usually likes to throw in lots of very difficult fights, there's the potential for luck tests and sundry other random rolls to bring your adventure to a sudden fatal end. To get the brooch, which is more or less needed for the adventure, that's a 50-50 roll, which feels very harsh. There's the potential to have to take a lot of luck tests, but precious few opportunities to regain luck throughout the adventure. While I'm more or less okay with a loss of provisions, despite my unwavering devotion to the running gag about eating to heal stab wounds, I do think access to a magic potion, specifically a potion of luck, would have fixed a problem that does have the potential to ruin the game if you're committed to playing strictly honestly. Again, the perfect path doesn't require a huge number of luck rolls, but deciding when to use a potion of luck to restore that resource adds a really nice bit of meta strategy to a book for me. I'm generally okay with a few instant deaths sprinkled into the mix. The world is a dangerous place after all, but I would have liked to see more of the luck tests result in stamina loss rather than an immediate sticky end. The other weakness is that a fair few of the elements feel a little underbaked, probably as a consequence of covering so much ground. The dungeon you find has two very simple gimmicks to solving it, which is fine, but does feel a bit underwhelming once you know how to solve it. Livingstone is telling an expansive story but that inevitably makes some of the elements feel a bit superficial. There's still plenty of imagination on display in the encounters, as I alluded to earlier, but this is emblematic of a fundamental tension in gamebook design. With a set number of paragraphs, you can have breadth or depth, but it's very hard to have both. Hence the broadly linear narrative and the relatively simple encounters. It somehow feels a little bit rushed, and the fact that it's a slender volume indicates that Livingstone is pushing his clear and concise style to the limit. Now, I appreciate Livingstone's ability to paint a vivid picture with remarkably few words, but I do think there's occasions where more expansive prose would have been good here, as much to slow down the pacing of the action as to describe it more fully. The art is very solid throughout. It doesn't have the stylistic flourishes of some of the more idiosyncratic artists, that I inevitably tend to prefer, but it's good in all departments. Everything looks like it should and ties in perfectly to the text, which is always nice to see. Nick Williams has really made an effort to follow the brief, and that attention to detail helps to make the world feel that bit more realised. In summary, I think Armies of Death is pretty good, but ducks the opportunity to be great, which is a shame. It's still nice to read something that hits the fundamentals, and I always appreciate the opportunity to spend time in the corner of Alansia that Ian Livingstone has made his very own. It's a good book, I think, is what I'm trying to say. It's a good book. Well, that's all for this episode I'll be back in early June with a very special bonus episode, hopefully featuring a game book written by one of my listeners, so that should be very exciting. I've also got some really interesting things lined up for the next couple of bonus episodes, so hopefully there'll be plenty to look forward to over the summer. I'll also be putting a new development diary for my new game book up on Patreon in the next couple of days. Progress has been slightly slower in the last week or so because I got a copy of the new Zelda game as an early birthday present from my husband, and that has the capacity to swallow time in the most unbelievable way. But hopefully, I can find a little self discipline and write about where I'm at in the design process because I'm currently at my favourite bit of gamebook development and I'm really excited to write about it. As always, thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.